Well, Grace Covenant, what, what a joy. Now, if I, I attended this church, I would just, on a regular basis, I'd just still be staring at the nice building. You come into a nice auditorium, you just look around, and I actually missed the, your grand opening. So I'm going to take a moment to just throw in what I would, would have said had I been here, because this, this is such a, uh, a milestone for you and for what God is doing in this, in this whole area. Um, you know, I started, you know, I'm not a very good athlete. My name is Rice. When I was in high school, I didn't, I was on the basketball team. I didn't get, I didn't get to play very much. I got to play like one minute. So they call me minute Rice. I would come in at the end and, um, you know, it's hard, it's hard to really be cool at the end of the bench. You know, there's no way to just pretend you're just down there hurt, you know, um, but God has a sense of humor and he took my ministry actually started out on a college campus on a basketball court watching a young man play was in an inter, just a, in a recreational uh, Mississippi State University in the gym just rec gym and watching uh, one of the football players a uh, middle linebacker named Curtis running up down the court and the Lord I believed impressed to me that he'd been praying for somebody to talk to him about the Lord about God and I was the answer to his prayer so I walked up to him and said, look, I hope you don't think I'm crazy, but I think God told me to tell you, you've been, talk, you've been praying for somebody to talk to you about him. Sorry, it's me. I'm the answer to your prayer. He had just prayed that prayer, went back to his room. He became a Christian, seven of his teammates. And it was quite astounding because these eight young African-American men, uh, that there was something that happened and happened with me in terms of their lives and just a calling. Uh, shortly after that, I met Pastor Brett, and together we began, in fact, we, we started a ministry called African American Resource Ministry, which that's one of my proudest accomplishments is I'm the co-founder of ARM, you know. So Pastor Brett being the leader, when I, I love to see people's faces when they see the co-founder of ARM come out. And uh, again, sorry, it's me. Uh, but Pastor Brett, whether it going on to help reach athletes and not just this country, but bringing people like Daryl Green and others to the table that really brought a credible witness uh, to ministry to sports teams. And then uh, when I became pastor in Nashville in 2000, uh, again, Grace Covenant was there to come to the rescue because I knew in a city like ours, it was so divided ethnically and racially that we needed to raise up a, a, a church that looked like what I believe heaven needs to look, what heaven looks like and what we need to look like to reflect heaven. So I was here on a Sunday morning and I just looked at Pastor Brett and I said, I need you, is there a leader? I need a leader. I need an African-American leader to come stand with me. And he just, he had this look and then there was Pastor Tim Johnson. And if you're new here, Pastor Tim was a, uh, not only a great athlete, a better man, uh, family man, leader in this city. So Pastor Tim, yes, Pastor Tim came and stood with me side by side, and, and together it was our church now, is, uh, is, it's really a miracle. Not only has it gone and touched, we have several locations in, in Nashville in the area, but also, like you, Pastor Brett mentioned, Cincinnati, uh, Phoenix, Dallas, we're about to start now coming into Louisville. And our, and our logo is, uh, we should have had this picture, is a black hand and white hand in prayer, and we've raised those hands up. 
Uh, also in New York City, after the day after 9-11, I just sensed that same voice telling me to drive to New York. And I'd, we went up to New York City and got there on the 13th of September and looked around. And there was a, a reporter from NBC News, uh, MSNBC, Alice Ree, who looked at me and she said, this city is open. What are you going to do about it? it? needs help. So we went back to Nashville on the Sunday after 9-11 and stood up and said, we don't know how we're going to do this. We're going to plant a church in New York. And, and out of the crowd, a man came and said, I have a theater on Times Square. You can use it. And so for one month after 9-11, Pastor Tim and I would do our three services in Nashville and jump in a plane and for a year travel to New York City. And, uh, you know, it was, one, it, was, it was one of those times. And, you know, there was an incident that happened because, you know, I, I noticed being around people that are diverse and the sensitivity that I noticed that African-American men had this thing they did that I, I really liked. And it was, for lack of a better term, I call it a courtesy nod. When, when, when you see an African-American man and they see another African-American man, they'd kind of do this. Now I saw that and I kind of liked that. I thought, so nobody ever gave me any kind of nod like that, you know? So we were, Pastor Tim and I were going up and back and forth to New York and we were walking to the airport one day and we're walking down and I saw this African-American man coming down the other way and he gives Pastor Tim a nod and he didn't see it. So I just reached in there and picked it up. And you can tell, you can tell he, he kind of looked like, man, get out of my nod. You ain't got no business in my nod. So Grace Covenant has helped me in many practical ways to trace back the courtesy nod. But now Pastor Brett serves as our North American leader. And so really what you see in God's not dead, I was, that's, again, I believe this is your movie because, because Pastor Brett's doing what he's doing to stand with us and to lead, especially planting churches throughout this uh, continent, not just America, but Canada. It allows me to really be focused on what I do best, which is reaching college students. And I was literally writing down the evidence for God. What do you say when somebody says, you know, how do you know God exists? Writing that down and, and um, was telling a friend about it. And he said, man, that needs to be a movie. So he called the movie company. They came and talked to me. I gave them the, I gave them the story of what happens on a campus when people are challenged to defend their faith. And so the first movie came out and did very well. It's gone around the world. I just was back. I was just in Italy. It's, it's in all over Italy right now. So, uh, which was really quite astounding to see the impact and to see and hear these arguments in Italian. It's dubbed. It isn't subtitled, but, um, throughout Africa. And, and just again, for me, it's all about the open door for the gospel. So now this next movie, God's Not Dead 2, and I'm not trying to do a shameless plug, but you, you would have seen this in there in the trailer. This is actually in the movie, uh, this new book called Man, Myth, Messiah. And it's basically the question of does Jesus exist? How do you know he existed? What's the historical evidence? And so really it's about helping people, equipping. That's, that was what I told everybody from the beginning. I said, look, we, our country is in trouble. We have to equip people to know that God exists, why the Christian story is true. There's all of these statistics that run around that are kind of scary that when people go from high school to college, I've heard it as high as 80% of young people will lose their faith when they go out of high school to college. There's no study that suggests it's that high, but there is evidence that it's, a, it's very high. 
And so if you get down to it and you think, what, what's, what's going on here? Why are so many people going to college out of high school? And they had a great youth group. I mean, people today, they've got fantastic youth ministry and great worship and teaching and relevant, uh, you know, relatable leaders. But deep down, my, our study shows that it's basically they don't really know that the story is true. Yes, it's kind of true in the church setting, but is there really truth to this? Is, did it really happen? Does God really exist? Is Christ really who we think he is or what he claimed to be? And how do you know? And so that's really what this passion, this is what this is all about. This is what I'm hoping, and it's not just for kids. This is kind of like on the airplane when they say, look, if the plane goes down and the mask drops, Put it on yourself first, then put it on your kids. You know, you got to have this. This is not because many times people sit in a service and they suppress doubts because, and they're afraid to ask them as if somehow that I'm going to be in trouble for even thinking a thought like that. And see, Christianity doesn't say just suppress all your doubts and just pretend that they're not there. Bring them out. Talk about it. Quit working so hard to try to not think about it because... Uh, Christianity, God calls us to come to him, not against our reason, but to come through it. The world is understandable. The world is explicable because there is a God who has ordered the universe. As Einstein once said, the most incomprehensible thing about the universe is it is comprehensible. So what is it about this universe? What is it about the fact that it's so mathematically ordered? The people can sit down on a piece and write out on a piece of paper something like Einstein did, only to have it confirmed experimentally by the experiments of Eddington that showed that space was curved. How do you, how do you have that kind of order in your mind and understand the rational order of the universe if all of this came for, for no reason? If there was no cause, no reason, no intelligence behind it, how is this explicable? So anyway... We'll get into that in the next uh, few minutes here, but I want to read a verse that I think will help you get where I'm coming from in the next few minutes that we have to make this point. Acts 26, the Apostle Paul is writing, or actually Luke, who is the companion of Paul, is writing about Paul's experience. Now, let me just stop and say that when we read something like this, the book of Acts is historically reliable. This is a fantastic book. That when you look at the history of, of, of the places that it mentions, the, the historiography and the process of how we know this is true, is really second to none. And skeptics themselves will acknowledge that Saul, or what we, who we call Paul, was a real person. He really lived. In fact, one of the facts of history that skeptics will acknowledge was that this man Saul was a persecutor of the faith, and he became the great defender of the faith. So something happened that he encountered, and he's actually going to tell us here what happens. He has this appearance of the risen Jesus, and Jesus doesn't just appear to him with this kind of like Jedi Jesus like in Star Wars where it's this holographic image. He actually speaks and gives him some orders. In other words, there's a reason why he appeared to him, just like there's a reason why he calls us. And Paul recounts this in verse 16. He says, the Lord said to him, uh, arise, stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose. To appoint you as a witness to the things in which you have seen me and in those in which I will appear to you. So you've seen some things and there's going to be some other stuff coming. Delivering you from your own people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you. And here it is, verse 18, to open their eyes 
so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So I appear to you for this purpose. Let me just pause for just a minute. Lord, thank you for this moment. Thank you for this people. Help me to communicate. Help us to hear. Open our eyes in this moment in a greater way to see you more clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul said, I was sent to open their eyes. Pastor Brett, my countdown clock is, I'm I'm, I'm confused here because I don't want to get talking and then you're up here saying you went over time. What's it's 11.23, when do I stop? 11.40, okay. Okay, good, all right. Oh, there's my countdown clock. Okay, he's giving me a lot more time than you're giving me on that clock, see? You're giving me 11 minutes, he's giving me, okay. Turn that one off, because I'm gonna, I'm gonna choose that one anyway. <laughs> my dad came to Christ in his 50s after my atheist brother came home to talk me out of the Christian faith in law school. He was in law school. He came home to talk me out of the faith, and we baptized him that weekend. And, and, um, and, and so then my, my dad came to Christ, and then he started coming to hear me speak. And uh, he, he came to me one day after a message. He said, you know, son, you're not bad. He said, but I think you have a fear of stopping. And he told me he began to teach Bible studies at his church when he was in his 70s. And the, he taught the old men in the church were like, which they were like 80s and 90s. I mean, they were calling my 70-year-old dad Sonny Boy, you know. And my dad told me, he said, yeah, I got up to speak one day and said, I got so much to say. I don't know where to start. And he said, one of these old boys in the back said, why don't you start near the end? <laughs> so I'm going to start as close to the end as I can. I started that. Um, but. I used to think that when you read this, it says, I've been sent to open their eyes. Paul says, I was sent to open their eyes. Now, my mind goes to the song that we sing. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. As if God is the only one that can open eyes. Many times we default to, well, the Lord's just going to have to open their eyes. He's going to have to let them see. And so we probably rightly so, will relegate that kind of action to God alone being the one that does that. But that's not what Paul is saying. Paul says that Jesus told me to go open their eyes. I remember uh, when I was maybe fourth grade, I was coming home from school, and I remember when somebody came alongside of me with that look in their face, like, I can't wait to tell you this dirty joke. And by their, what they told me opened my eyes to evil in a greater way. And I remember the feeling of, you know, there was a little bit of exhilaration that something forbidden was being told to me, but also it just left me with this feeling of emptiness of now things are kind of ruined, you know? Not that I found out something greater way with, with the physiological aspects of life and the facts of life, but just the slant on which it came just kind of put something around it that just made it negative. My eyes were open to something. When you think about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and I'm often asked on campuses, do you believe in a literal Adam and Eve? 
Somebody said, oh, you believe in the talking snake? Of course. You know, in America, they get late-night talk shows. But the, but the, the fact that there is an evil presence that can speak through an instrument, whoever is available. I mean, he even spoke through Jesus' closest disciple. And Jesus had to say, get behind me, Satan. So it's like somebody asked me one time and said, who do you, who do you think the Antichrist is? I said, well, if you're not serving Jesus, maybe it's you. <laughs> you're a candidate, you know. I mean, it is really deep. It, the, the Antichrist comes from two words, Antichrist. So who, if you're against what he's for, then you're, you know, anyway. But, but Adam and Eve, you know, geneticists tell us that, that you know, you have what's called, you know, mitochondrial Eve and Y chromosome Adam. In other words, the, there's evidence that the human race, there was a bottleneck thousands of years ago versus the animal kingdom, where if you look in the oldest rock, the Cambrian rock, about 530 million years ago, there's this explosion of life. And these, all these major body types appear and animal types appear suddenly in the, in the fossil record without any predecessors. If you go online to the Time Magazine, just put Time Magazine Evolution's Big Bang, and you'll see a cover story in the 90s of Time talking about how that life just suddenly appears in this, and that's why they called it Evolution's Big Bang. So I have, there's no intellectual suicide you commit by acknowledging that there was an original couple here, and, and yet what was, the, what was the challenge by the enemy to them was the knowledge, the knowledge of good and evil, and that something they would eat, ingest, would somehow give them something that God had withheld from them. Now, God was only doing to this couple what you and I do to our kids. We don't want our... So you see, the knowledge of good was everywhere. The only thing they lacked was the knowledge of evil, and that's always this curiosity that, you know, how will we know... Unless we, under, unless we see it, whether it's right or wrong. God was saying, trust me, it's wrong. Just like we put you know, filters on our internet. We don't want our kids to see certain things. Remember, my, you'll see my youngest son who's 16 and 6'7 out there in the, in, the, in the back. He's with me. And I remember when he was real little, something came up on the TV set. And he just reached up and put his hands over my eyes. He says, don't look, Dad. And I remember going, hey, wait a minute. What, I'm supposed to be doing that to you. What do you mean telling me not to look? And how do you know what I'm supposed to not look at? <laughs> and people mock at that and saying, oh, you're going to eat the fruit. Some apple you eat wasn't an apple. But then I was listening to a TED Talk. If you know what the TED Talks are, these short uh, talks from different people of various le- uh, areas of expertise. And this one guy who had given the most TED Talks of all time was asking this talk to talk about the things to come, some of the, you know, predict, you know, maybe some astounding uh, breakthroughs and innovations that were to coming. And he suggested that in the coming days that knowledge would be able to be ingested in a pill, just like in the Matrix. Take the red pill. And here you look back and say, was there something that happened in the Garden of Eden that was far in advanced in terms of our understanding of what could have been happening in that moment. But here's what happened to say, all that to say this, as soon as they took in that knowledge, it says their eyes were opened. And so the eye opening function, how we open people's eyes, whether it's to good or evil, is certainly a human activity. 
And so what God has called us to do, we had a, we had a, a, a seminar yesterday and we talked about you know, engaging people with the gospel and asking them questions. We have an app called the God Test. It's free, but you go on Android or iPhone, you can download it. And all it is, it's a, it's a global survey. It's, da- it's been downloaded in 146 countries now. And it's basically giving questions, and we're recording all the answers from around the world, hundreds of thousands of answers that when you take this test. And it's asking people questions, but it's amazing how the questions that you ask people, see, we're trying to give people answers, but many times they haven't even thought of the question yet. They'll say things like, well, I don't believe in God. There's just no evidence. That's the rant of the skeptic. Oh, there's no evidence for God. There's no evidence. And I hear that. That's almost like people have learned to say that as if that's the slap down, knock down argument against us poor religious people who just, you know, oh yeah, well, okay. Oh no, oh, you mentioned evidence. That's kind of the, we don't know what to say. Wait a minute. So I'll stop and say, well, what evidence would you accept? What are you looking for? And most of them, including Richard Dawkins, will, when you push this back at them, they go, what? I haven't really thought about that. I'm so used to saying that that I haven't even thought what evidence I would accept. And, and then you say, look, if you, if you were looking for Steve Jobs, you wouldn't have found him by breaking down an iPhone. He, he's not in there. God is not a particle. He's not a wave. He's not a, God is the intelligent mind behind the universe. You're not looking. I'm not looking for a substance. I'm looking for the evidence of intelligence. And so we open people's eyes to the existence of God. The universe began, scientists say 13 billion years ago or 13.7, but, and people get hung up on the age of the earth or whatever, but really what's amazing is, is that scientists tell us that it, when the universe began, that it was finely tuned. It would be as if you had a universe starter kit. Imagine if you've got a universe starter kit like a soundboard and you've got a bunch of knobs. And I mean, you know, and you, let's just take gravity. How much gravity do you put in a universe? You put too much, universe never gets out of the blocks. Put too little, Molecules, stars, galaxy, nothing forms. And that knob of gravity has to be set at such a razor's edge. At, I mean, trillions and trillions and trillions of options. And then you've got the strong and weak nuclear force and then entropy. You've got dozens of these constants and quantities. The cosmological constant, which is to point zero zero to the 123rd, and if it's which affects somehow the expansion rate of the universe. If you go one click too much, 123 zeros with a point decimal, decimal point, 123 zeros. There's only 10 to the 80th particles in the whole universe. 10 to the point 123 and one click too much. And skeptics go, well, that's not a big deal. Because maybe there's an infinite number of universes. In other words, if you have an infinite number of chances to win the lottery, you'll get it. But you can look at this. See, we begin to open people's eyes to the fact that God exists. People say, well, you believe in, a, you believe in, a, in this book of miracles? Well, look, if God exists, then miracles are possible. So the question is really a philosophical argument. Is, do, it, it, does the evidence point to the fact that God exists? And if God does exist, if there is a creator of space and time, and science tells us that space and time came into existence at the Big Bang. So if space and time began 
That means that the creator had to be, or the cause had to be spaceless and timeless. Then you begin to see what Romans 1 says, that the nature and attributes of God are clearly seen through what has been made. So what could be timeless, spaceless, immaterial, uncaused, powerful to create, a, to create this, and then also personal, because in order for something to come from nothing into existence, there was a decision that had to be made. And that speaks of personality. And then you begin to get into what science now calls information theory. And really, see, physics and chemistry can explain the leather in the, in the ink on this, in this book. But what physics and chemistry can't explain is this. And it's called information. Information is a product of the mind. A non-material, non-physical reality. If you're walking down the beach and you see your name written in the sand, you don't think, look at what the waves can do. Look at that. You detect information. When you see Mount Rushmore, you see, you don't think, look at what wind and erosion can do. You see and detect information. That's why the most, to me, I'm so confident in when it says, in the beginning was the word. God speaks and information comes into existence and then for the sake of time this is what is really mind-blowing is that this creator this timeless spaceless god who speaks the information into the system scientists can't evolution only tells you what happens after you get life it can't explain that first self-replicating molecule with information. If you got a text from somebody and it was nonsense, you could tell they sat on their phone, which I never can figure out how somebody can type a message out and then hit send all by sitting on their phone. But it's nonsense, just word, just random letters. What if you got a text seven letters long, intelligible? You'd think, oh, there's no way that was constructed by accident. How about a text 3.1 billion letters long? That's the ordered, sequenced information in the human genome. But what's even more fantastic is, is that that information became flesh and walked among us. And we open the eyes of people to the reality that this Christ, you see, Jesus did something, you see, uh, years ago, and I'll stop with this, there was a philosopher of science named Karl Popper. And Popper said, let's, instead of trying to prove what's true, let's try to, let's say that whatever is going to be considered scientific or credible, let's see if it's falsifiable. And if something is not falsifiable, in other words, if you can't, if there's no test you can set up to show that it's false, then just forget it. It's just subjective you know, palaver. It's just, you know, just nonsense of I feel this or I feel that. No other religion in the world has such a test except Christianity. But God places the weight of the truth of this faith on one event. And that's the resurrection of Jesus. The Bible says this, if that happened... Or let's, he put, puts it in the negative. If it didn't happen, then your faith is in vain. God places the weight of the truth of this message on that event. Jesus lived. It's a historical fact. He not only just lived a life. He lived the life we should have lived. He lived perfectly the moral law of God. 
Broke a lot of religious taboos, but didn't break the moral law. And then he inexplicably dies this death. And we find out it's the death that we should have died. You say, what's that all about? Well, we have a legal problem. Because of sin or the injustice in our lives, God says that the wages of sin is death. And so Christ steps in, dies the death we should have died in our place. Three days later, he's raised from the dead, proving he's the son of God. To fly into D.C., usually I have to prove who I am. I can't just say, hey, it's me. I even have tried this where I pull out a book I wrote and say, see, it's me. Government doesn't accept that. You could have printed it up and just, this could be just pasted together. Trickery. The validation of Jesus being the son of God. And this is why you and I can put the weight of our trust. There's four questions I'll ask to college students around the world. Number one, why is there something rather than nothing? Why is there a universe instead of nothing at all? I was on one campus and I said, you got two choices. Either everything you see created itself or it was started by something besides itself. And I thought that was a pretty logical choice. And the kid in the back raised his hand. He goes, there's a third choice. I said, what is it? He goes, maybe we're not here at all. I said, well, in that case, you would be here, so please be quiet. <laughs> but we're here, so something happened. Why is there something rather than nothing? Number two, where did life come from? The inexplicable arrival of life. Richard Dawkins says, well, yeah, life is complex. Maybe it came from outer space. And they ask him why, and you, you can Google it on Ben Stein Exposed, where Ben Stein interviews him. He said, well, if you look close enough in the cell, you'll see a signature. He's willing to say that life is intelligently designed is only if it's got a natural explanation like E.T. or something. The third question is, why are we moral? What is it about us that we understand that there is good and evil, injustice and justice? C.S. Lewis would say it this way. I know that there's such a thing as a crooked line, but how would I know what a crooked line was unless I knew what a straight line was? So within each of us, that's why somebody said, well, you're telling me that atheists are bad. Atheists can't be good. No, no, no. Atheists can be good. Just like, can religious people be bad? Of course. I mean, just because I know the speed limit and I believe in the police doesn't mean I'm going to do it. What they say, it just means I'm more culpable and more responsible because of what I know. The fourth question is, who can we trust? And really, the fuller to pardon the pun, way to describe it is who can we trust to fix us? I'm walking down to take my kids to a Laker game in New Orleans. My boys who are here in the back and walked by a guy that was, uh, had a psychic table. And I, I looked at him and I felt like I was supposed to talk to him. So I told my boys, look, I talked talk to this guy. I said, no, I'm not going to get my palm read. Just talk to this guy. I sit down and I Begin to talk to him about some questions. And I, first of all, you start asking questions. I said, can I ask you a question? I said, how did you become a psychic? Is this like a, I've never, is this like a class? Is there, a, is this an internet thing? I didn't, I was really one, I've never seen an advertisement on how to become a psychic. So I started, I started the conversation. I began to ask him questions. And after a few minutes of listening to him thoroughly, he stopped and looked at me and said, now you tell me why you do what you do. Because I told him I was a minister. I said, looked at him and said, I preach the gospel to people. 
I said, because the gospel is the only thing on this planet that can show a person what's really wrong with them. And I said, my wife was sick for almost two years. We didn't know what was wrong. We went to Israel for a season, and a little doctor at Adasa Hospital diagnosed what was killing my wife. And that was the best news to figure out what was really happening. I said, the gospel shows us what we're like, but doesn't leave us in despair. It shows us how to fix it. You see, there's a lot of injustice in the world, but the greatest injustice, like a guy sitting on an airplane in seat 14D, told me one time, he said, why is all this evil in the world? I said, God can get rid of it all in a minute. He just had to kill everybody. I said, but God has a plan to save the world by changing our heart. And I said to him, I said, God wants to start by getting all the evil out of seat 14D. I said, he wants to change the world starting in seat 14D. Now, you may not be sitting sitting in 14D, but wherever you're sitting today as we pause and stop, the miracle we need out there starts right where you're seated. So let's pray. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your mercy to all of us. Lord, none of us is beyond the need of a Savior. Something is inside of us that though we believe things, though we have beliefs and convictions, we're not even true to the very things that we tell others we believe in. We see this contradiction in all of us, this proclivity, this bent toward the wrong thing, though in our heads we know the right thing. God, only you, the creator, who came not to end all physical oppression like others wanted you to start with. They wanted you to start ending the physical oppressions of armies and slavery and everything. But you came to bring a different kind of freedom, one from within. So that the Apostle Paul, when he wrote, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, did it with a chain around his leg. His physical circumstances were now beside the point. Jesus, come into our hearts and lives. Just say that, Jesus, come into my life today. I recognize who you are. You're the Son of God. You died on the cross. You rose from the dead. It's true. I put the weight of my trust, not in myself, not in my efforts, but I put the weight of my trust in you, Jesus, today. 